Hi, and welcome to Be More Now. My name is Blake Moore, and tonight I'm interviewing author, philanthropist, and spiritual teacher J.J. Gold, who founded the Center for Cultural and Naturalist Studies, a California nonprofit organization that offers disaster relief in the U.S. and works with underprivileged children worldwide. We'll be discussing his latest book, his lifelong studies and world travels, as well as his insights on how subtlety, humor, perspective, and an understanding of group dynamics can help us come to terms with today's fast-paced, technology-filled culture. So before I bring on J.J. Gold, I want to tell you a bit about him. Author, philosopher, and spiritual teacher, J.J., also known as Justin Gold, has lived a bold and varied life. As a young man in New York, his early interests included boxing, poker playing, and breezing thoroughbreds. He has owned restaurants, done financial consulting, built houses, and raised children. His biggest passion, however, has been the exploration of consciousness and inner freedom. Justin has dedicated the past 40 years to the study and dissection of the micro-moments of human behavior in the aim of uncovering the naturalness and beauty that lies buried in all of us. He makes use of subtlety, humor, perspective, and group dynamics using tools he specially creates for people living in our fast-paced, technology-filled culture. He is the founder of the Center for Cultural and Naturalist Studies, a California nonprofit organization that offers disaster relief in the U.S. and works with underprivileged children worldwide. The group normally undertakes one extended service trip a year, but had to postpone their trips due to the pandemic. So while under COVID lockdown at home, Justin spent much time going through photos of past trips, and this led to the creation of The Currency of Moments, a large format book comprised of 80 color photographs overlaid with a sentence or two that pairs the spirit of words with each image. All the photos in the book were taken by Justin or his friends during social work or adventure trips during the last 35 years, from the tip of South America to the Arctic Circle and from Cambodia to California, traveling both east and west. Here's an interview that took place earlier this week. Justin, JJ Gold, it's really a pleasure to have you here with me on Be More Now. Yeah, it's a pleasure to be here. Do you want to start off, Jay, Justin, so everyone knows who it is I'm talking to? Okay. Uh, I live in California, and I've written some books, and I uh, generally go by the name of J.J. Gold in my, in my books because uh, my first name, Justin, has been usurped by uh, the peanut butter king, so I, I have adjusted <laughs> to, to being called J.J. Gold on my books and on my website and things like that. But uh, Justin's fine, and it's the name I've had since birth, and and uh, I actually like it. So, <laughs> so I will call you Justin from now on. That sounds great. Okay. <laughs> Perfect. So why don't you talk a little bit about your background and you know who you are, what you do, and right. I have an unusual background for the place where I've landed. Uh, so <clears throat> I'll talk a little bit about that. I, I grew up in New York City and certainly have the uh, credentials of cynicism and, uh, and uh, uh, caustic wit that uh, comes with that territory <clears throat> and has only mellowed because of my transition from uh, being a, a, a gambler and a, a promoter to a spiritual teacher and gone from the East Coast to the West Coast. So <clears throat> my time now is spent in, uh, uh, more in a rural setting in the woods more, and uh, I have people that I have uh, worked with for years and trying to uh, identify and leave behind the uh, the obstacles to being uh, free and natural and, and uh, conscious people. But I did start off certainly as a, uh, uh, a rough and tumble street person in New York City, grew up in the Bronx, and, and uh, didn't really do well in much of anything till I uh, <clears throat> tripped over gambling and got very successful at that. And uh, as things go, I became tired of that and looked for some other meaning and found it. So you didn't have the kind of gambling story where you lost everything and had to soul search. You gained everything and then had to soul search. I think that's uh, fairly accurate. Uh, there is uh there was a certain restlessness that uh, 
came along with me in my in my progression as a young person and everything seemed to be a little bit less than it could be and gambling was exciting and living in new york city and manhattan was exciting but even that started to uh fade after a while and i was looking for something else and and really i met some people and i had some good fortune in the contacts that i made and and uh was introduced to ideas that i had really never been introduced to before and found a place that uh that seemed much less limited than all the other places i had been when you say much less limited what do you mean by that well i mean i i, I was definitely aware of uh the possibilities of external life about accumulating uh, whether it's uh, possessions or reputation or connections or <clears throat> or uh anything like that i was definitely aware of that but i was not aware that there was uh what one might call an inner life that there was actually some depth and quality going on within inside me and that's in my feelings and even deeper than that that could be reached through meditation that that i i was not even close to aware of and and being introduced to that and uh uh pursuing that and exploring that uh seemed to open up doors and the doors just kept opening and really still seem to keep opening you started the center for cultural naturalist studies is that part of this evolution as you opened doors and discovered more things about yourself well that was more so we didn't have to pay taxes <laughs> there's the new york coming out right there <laughs> <laughs> yeah so uh we actually we we actually i started uh i started uh what you might call teaching or at least being a spiritual friend back in the early 1980s in Santa Barbara and uh we had somewhat of a community there and we started uh, <clears throat> uh meeting together and then uh someone suggested a, a social work project because of some contact they had in Thailand and i had never done anything like that before uh i had uh, my my spiritual pursuit was much more personally oriented and self-directed and also the people around me but i had not really uh looked into what could be needed uh in the world i had done a lot of traveling but more more of the adventure traveling variety so we went to thailand and we spent uh, an extended amount of time there almost a year and and uh, worked with some people and worked with some children and did some building and then when we came back it was obvious that that was going to be part of our program uh so we formed the uh the nonprofit organization so that we could so that we could uh have the flexibility to do social work programs and that's pretty much what the center of cultural and naturalist studies is about you were saying that part of that is you you travel all around with groups of people that then go and do that social work also you engage yes i i i have i have been part of a group dynamic actually i grew up in a a, a multi-ethnic family and it was extended and uh <clears throat> so there were always people around my house and i got very comfortable with that kind of dynamic which is somewhat unusual and when it came to uh finding people who were like-minded uh we gravitated toward each other and uh found ways to live either near each other or with each other and uh so the, the all the programs that I've been part of whether is internal spiritual work or social work uh whatever it's been it's been involved it's involved uh, numbers of people not large numbers of people but uh numbers of people that I could feel uh that I still could have one-to-one contact with each person rather than having uh, uh groups that were unwieldy and and I would be out of touch with what was really going on there. So I call myself a 25-mile guru. I'm a 25-mile radius guru. I the people I know and deal with are are within the general area that I live in and I do know people and have contact with people that are certainly in other cities and even in other countries but the 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 focus of my work has definitely been with the people that are closest around me we've gone to numerous places and most recently we went we spent a few months in Cambodia 
before that in Thailand and before that in Mexico and before that really, really all over and uh, try to, wherever we are, even if it's a pleasure trip, to find some way that we can interact with the people in some, in some giving way. We had a, a, a trip not long ago to a, the country of Georgia, which is a pretty remote place. And we found a community there that was uh, in need and found some way to interact with them. So I've found that not so much in my personal style, but that it's, it's really one of those enriching things. And if it's not part of a spiritual quest, I think there's really something missing because we are, we, especially myself, so fortunate and uh, without passing it on, there's something definitely missing. Just a quick reminder that you're listening to KZWX, Be More Now. I'm your host, Blake Moore, and I'm interviewing J.J. Gold, also known as Justin Gold, author, philanthropist, spiritual teacher. So when you speak of doing something for people in Georgia, can you be more specific about the kinds of actions, the kinds of service that you do when you feel, here's a need, let's fulfill this? Right. Well, our community, for some reason, has the capacity to build. We build our own houses, and uh, <clears throat> not, not primitive houses, but full-on houses, and we have that capacity. We have building trades capacity, so we have made it part of our focus to, uh, to look for situations where there are children in need, and we have built, uh, in Cambodia, we built a, an addition to a, uh, a birthing clinic which was uh, uh, definitely in need because the mothers, after they got birth, got, uh, gave birth, got right onto their motorcycle, the back of their motorcycles with their babies and took off. And that was not a realistic situation for health. So we built that and we built a, uh, uh, a building in Thailand, which was for, uh, for raising and uh, uh, producing silk from silkworms. And that, we built that because the, the village that we were involved in, the women there were, were, uh, were uh, involved in a lot of poverty and were having to go down to Bangkok to get involved in the sex trade to even support themselves and their families. So one possibility for, for, uh, for getting out of that uh, situation was to de- uh, develop an industry. So we built this building for them to... Uh, develop a silkworm building. So whatever the need is of the place, we do plug into it, but it's not, I wouldn't want to be, uh, overemphasize our giving uh, gestures. There's a lot in it for us and wherever we go, we have a good time as well. And if there's warm water, we go swimming. And if there's windsurfing, we go windsurfing. If there's climbing in the mountains, we go climbing in the mountains. So it's, it's not, uh, uh, this self, uh, uh, a process of self-denial. There's a lot in giving, and and we seem to take care of ourselves pretty well as well. I like the way you said that. That's wonderful. That feels great. Also, you've written many books. You want to talk a little bit about the books you wrote? And then I know you have a brand-new book that you just came out with, and I believe you wrote it since you couldn't do some of the things you would normally do during COVID hiatus. We've all taken from our Mm -hmm. normal lives. Yeah, uh, I, I really uh, have uh, an interesting history from from literature. I grew up uh, being good at math and good, good at science and adequate with reading, adequate enough to proceed on and do well in school, but uh, I was not a reader. Uh, my sister was a reader, and uh, the competition in that family situation took me away from reading, as, as things go in that case. But... When I started to read, I became, in my 20s, I became really uh, a fanatic reader and, and made up for my, uh, my reading deficient youth, and, but certainly was not a writer. But I did, I did take notes, and I recorded uh, meetings that I, that I gave, public meetings that I gave, starting uh, with the early 1980s. Uh, so I had a lot of material of words and transcribed them, and then I, that year that I spent in Thailand, uh, there were times where I had very little to do. So I thought, well, you know, I'm going to put this together in a book and see what I can do with it. So I put together a lot of my ideas and, uh, and then wrapped the story around it, which was 
uh, a little bit a little bit fiction, a little bit fact, but I re- did wrap a story around it about a poker player, which I have a history of having been. That was that was and, the book, Another Heart in His Hand. Is that the name of that yes. book? Yes, uh-huh. yes, that's correct. And, and so that book did really well, and people were it was, became very popular, and I and I uh, promoted it, and I had a good time doing that. And and uh, but I after that, I it was a while since I wrote since I. Uh, did my next writing and then I wanted to see if I could do a little more of uh, the kind of writing that I have really valued and that's not so much uh, writing how-to books or only idea books but burying ideas in a story and I felt that I I really appreciate uh, uh, fairy tales because a fairy tale tells you a story and you can extract whatever is within your capacity to extract and uh, I like books like that. There are, you know, Lost Horizon and, and uh, Mount Analog and, and so many Herman Hess books are stories where there is a, a, a deeply meaningful uh, under, underlying uh, story there, but it's buried, and I want to try to bury one. So I wrote a, a venture travel book and try to bury some of my ideas in that. And then I thought that went really well, and I really loved that book. That's called uh, Highway of Highway Diamonds. Highway of Diamonds, an international yes. travel adventure. Yes. Yes. So I wrote that, and, and that, was, uh, that was challenging. But then after that, I wanted to really bury one in. So I wrote a spy book, because I love spy books. And uh, so I wrote a book that uh, took place in Cuba. And uh, I went to Cuba to research the book. And uh, I think that you've been to Cuba, or I saw some I mention of Cuba. Mm-hmm. Yes, uh huh. And uh, so I, I wrote the book uh, about uh, uh, an alternative, uh, an alternative uh, result of uh, some peaceful interactions between the U.S. and Cuba, rather than the hostile ones that have gone by. And I buried some of my ideas in there, and that was extremely challenging. And I liked writing that book, and. Then I kind of ran out of things that I wanted to write. But uh, in this last year, as you said, we've all had really unique circumstances. And uh, so instead of traveling, which we would have done, certainly we, uh, we got a projector that you can project a really big picture on the wall. So we had our own kind of little movie theater. And we started looking at our old photos, which was which is always exciting to do, looking at your own photos. How many years' worth of photos would you say? I'd say probably 30, maybe a little more. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, Back to the 1980s, to trips to uh, North Africa and Peru. And I, uh, so looking at those pictures was interesting to me because I, there were two things that I could do. I could say, oh, remember that, remember that. But the actual pictures evoked some ideas in me, some sayings in me, some, some, uh, wisdom and words in me. So I started to try to put the wisdom of the, the wise words together with the pictures. And I ended up with this concept of what I would, what I'm calling quotographs, a quote on a photograph and not necessarily an arbitrary quote, but a quote that's evoked by the picture in the photograph. And so I was playing with that. I had no idea whatsoever what it would be. And I started putting some of those photographs on Facebook or Twitter and then after I got a whole bunch of them, somebody suggested, hey, we should put this together and uh, have it available for people because it's, it's a fun thing and it's so easy to look at because you just turn the page, you look at a couple, and then, you know, you could put it on the back of your toilet if you want, you know. So, so I enjoy doing that, and I still enjoy looking at them. I, I like those. I like the sayings, and I like the process, and I learned a skill because I got into this program called Canva, where you can actually mm-hmm. take a photograph of yours and do that. And I, I'm a little weak in the, uh, in the, in the tech uh, arena, but I d- did develop that skill. So I basically did them all. I made all the photographs myself. And that was as much fun as, uh, as writing the books were. So that's my... And the name of that book is The Currency of Moments. Yes, currency of moments. Anomalies through images and ideas. I called it. Uh, I called it. I called it currency of moments because I think that that's an area that's really misunderstood by people. Currency is like something of value, 
and moments are something of value and and uh and pictures are always of moments pictures can't be more than a moment unless it's a moving picture and so all these pictures are pictures of moments and so it expresses the currency of moments that there is value in moments and sometimes it's hidden beneath the surface but there is value in moments and so i came up with that title which i think is appropriate for the book yeah, it's a great book. And then I also love that you called it quotograph. And yeah. this idea that there's a quote with every picture and the quote is almost as if it's the doorway that opens up perhaps the story. Yes, that's right. Do you want to dive into the book a little bit? And and, and I'm also going to remind listeners that there will be links to everything on the KZWAG page as well as on my own page at bemoreu.net. So they'll all be there. So I would, um, would you like to, I mean, I could pick one out or you could if there's a, a particular quote and, you know, I would say, um, I think one thing on the, on the opening page of the book, you say that the common denominators as humans outnumber our differences. And I feel like right now that is so important for us to focus on and curious, what made you pick this message as the opening for the book? Well, I have, I have. I think I put on the back of one of my other books some, a saying uh, that I use that I, that I believe is that uh, that uh, pride pride separates us, and it really doesn't matter what pride it is. If I had, you know, I'm I'm <clears throat> proud of what I've written, but that means that it still is a somewhat of a separating element. And anything that we're proud of, we're proud of being talented, we're proud of being beautiful we're proud of being wealthy, if we're proud of being flexible, if we're proud of being, have any strength whatsoever, that means we are and somebody else isn't. And that's just the way it is. It's going to be that way. If we're proud that we're athletic, uh, it really doesn't matter. And there's, no, there's nothing wrong with those prides, but they are, right. separating, they are separating elements and will continue to be. They're not evil, but they're separating elements. Even the idea that uh, one person is white and one person is black and one person is female and one person is male <clears throat> is a separating element and it's fine that it's there, but it is a separating element. But the fact is that in being a human being, in being proud of he- human being, which is a pride that we never hear, we really never learn it. I never learned it and I never hear it to be proud of being a human being not a white human being, not a black human being, not a male human being, not a talented human being, not a rich human being. The pride of being a human being is totally not separating between human beings. And so I I feel that like as a mantra. So I I came up with a picture of, of two people from totally different worlds on a trip that I was on. And one is a, a Western lady uh, and one is a, a Tuareg tribesman, and the picture is, is a beautiful picture on the sands of the Sahara Desert, and there, there's a wind blowing, and they're both standing in this wind, and they're, and they're bundling up. And I say in this quote that uh, something like uh, that uh, uh, when there's a chill wind, we all bundled up. No matter what different, different world we come from, when there's a chill wind, we all bundle up. The other person is a Tuareg, a Tuareg uh, North African tribesman, the people who live in the Sahara Desert, and they dress blue. They dress in blue. They dye their clothes with indigo and dress frequently in blue. And I've got to spend some time there, so I have some familiarity with that, with those people. And, and they were traveling with us on this trip, and... Uh, and had different ways, certainly different ways of eating, and were very concerned about what we ate, uh, that, uh, that it wasn't good for him, them, and we were very concerned about what they ate, that it wasn't good for us. But when it came to the chill wind, we all bundled up. <laughs> good way to start the book, and what a beautiful way to put it, too, because it really ties everything in. And, and it just keeps going from there. I mean, turning the page to the next page, you say playing is the natural expression of our relative size and importance in the creation. And you've got children on a playground. It's just this, whether we deprive ourselves of playing by taking ourselves too seriously or are prevented from playing by external circumstances 
when it becomes available to us, we rush to it. Yeah, that, that picture is one of my favorites because it took place in, uh, in Thailand dealing with uh, Burmese refugees who, are, who come over the border, uh, the Thailand border in a place called Mesat and uh, for for uh, uh, <clears throat> for safety because it's dangerous on the on their Burmese side of the border, uh, and it's even more dangerous now because there's difficult times happening in my, Myanmar, which is Burma. But all these kids were uh, were living right across the border in Thailand, and we were doing some building on their school, and so we had the idea. Of, they had no idea what the playground equipment was. Basically, they they played with the, what they could, what they had, they could scrape together to play with. So we we found a, a metal fabricator in town, and we drew pictures of what we wanted them to to weld together. And they had never seen anything like that either. So we put together a, a seesaw and a sliding pond and the different some different things, and we set it up, and then we turned the kids loose. And you can see by that picture how fascinating it was to the kids. And some of the kids are, are, have been really traumatized and have lost, lost family, you know, very difficult and, and sometimes very quiet. But when we set up that, when we set up that, uh, that uh, sliding board, they rushed to it. And so that's the essence of that, uh, that photograph and that uh, saying that we're all really in the same place. We, we do love to play. Playing is natural to us. And, and uh, when we have the opportunity, we play. And even, even you know, in politics, it's so divisive and, and, and difficult and, and combative. But every once in a while, you see a moment when somebody lightens up and the other person lightens up as well. And wouldn't it be wonderful if a lot of that lightening up happened a little more often? One thing that I just want to point out about the picture is that the kids are just all smashed into each other, trying to get as close to that ladder so they can climb up the slide as possible. I mean, literally, they're almost like one huge human. They are, and there's just, you really feel that lack of fear. You know, my experience, my travels with Thai people is intimacy comes more naturally than, say, a lot of Western people. There's this, this is my space, that is your space, do not cross it. And it's that freedom that you feel, that physical freedom, really comes through in this photograph. You're listening to Be More Now. I'm your host, Blake Moore, and I'm interviewing JJ, also known as Justin Gold. We're talking about his book of photographs, Currency of Moments. You also have another one that I was touched by. It's on page six, and you say, world travel provides a unique classroom. And when we see what other, other cultures have developed, we can marvel at the scope of human creativity. And I know you've traveled a lot and you've been exposed to different cultures. Do you want to elaborate on that? I, I do. That, uh, that picture is, is a perfect example. I'll describe the picture a little bit. It's a picture of something called uh, a water puppet. And uh, it's something that I found uh, uh, in, in a theatrical form in Hanoi in North Vietnam. Uh, not that long ago, not during the, the difficulty between North and South Vietnam, but maybe about maybe six or seven years ago, that, uh, that this particular uh, dynamic was obviously invented there because I'd never seen it anyplace else. But the, the uh, puppets are on water, and the people who are manipulating the puppets are behind a screen but operating through underwater. And very difficult to describe, but the puppets are beautiful, and the scene is beautiful, and the music is beautiful. And really, it would be difficult to watch these, shadow, these uh, water puppets without having your ma- mouth hang open because whoever thought of puppets happening on water you know, and with the people operating them from under the water. So I thought that was a good example because it was so out there uh, yeah. and without, without traveling. And it certainly is a, a, a privilege to be able to travel to that degree and to expect everybody, you know, people are under financial difficulties and people are under physical uh, uh, limitations and that level of travel isn't available. But certainly 
there's so much uh, video available. There's so much, uh, so many accounts of people traveling, and so much exposure is possible to uh, to cultures, to other cultures. That I think that that uh, my education uh, <clears throat> was really uh, uh, short, uh, or maybe even devoid of of that valuation. Uh, that uh, seeing seeing what other people have done and what other people do, and even the, the uh, efforts that people make to, uh, to get the basics, you know, to get water and to get electricity and to get uh, some comfort and some, some good health and comfort, how creative people are in, in countries that are less developed is, uh, is really fascinating to see. And I, I see that... Uh, I see that without without seeing that without seeing that and being aware of it and reading it and, and being exposed to it, it would be very difficult to think that uh, a country as huge as the United States, with so much nature and so many diverse areas, isn't the way it is everywhere. And it isn't the way it is everywhere, as you say. There are other cultures that have very different standards of even proximity between people. And uh, and one would not know that. And even being exposed to languages that are different uh, helps us to see that the words that we put, that we attach to things are just language. They're words that we put to things. The things themselves have a lot of different words in a lot of different countries and a lot of different languages. And we start to think that our words are the things that we're seeing, and they're really not. They're... They're just language, and, and uh, I don't think I would have realized that from just studying French in high school. It took me being exposed to a lot of different languages and also seeing how the essential connection people can make with only a basic 20 words of a foreign language. And I would advise anybody, I would give this advice without, without reservation to anybody traveling to a to a country where the, their language was different, learn some words in that language and your experience will be <clears throat> uh, considerably different than if you did, hadn't learned those words. Absolutely, and I think that's the other thing about especially quote-unquote poorer countries is that level of human ingenuity is so much more pronounced. And I feel that oftentimes when you're in a culture like ours where if you can drive on over to Joanne's or Michael's and get your supplies or go, go this way and use this, that it almost stifles creativity because everyone's kind of already shown you what it is you're supposed to be making based on this pattern. And I feel that you don't get that same level of self-expression when you're emulating something that's already been created using the same right. tools. Mm -hmm. Especially if you live right down the road from a winery, then you don't have to learn how to make wine. That's <laughs> so true. <laughs> yeah, you don't have to make anything. I mean, most of us here in Mendocino County have a much more close to nature sort of life, or many of us do, where we grow our own food. And I live in an area where I'm, you know, over an hour and a half from anything where you're going to get bigger supplies. So when the stores will close at 8 or 9 o'clock and restaurants close early, and I have friends who come visit and think, how could you possibly live like this? I need what I need. You know, I want ice cream. It's midnight. I can't go get ice cream. And I'm like, you have to prepare or you have to learn now, how to make Now it. we're talking hardship. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and I've actually been at other people's houses, and everybody wants a dessert. And I'm like, okay, well, take, take me to the pantry. Oh, there's nothing there. You can't make anything. And then I'll come out with a whole dessert because I'm used to having to figure out how do I satisfy this need with this, 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 these ingredients or this, these supplies. And I think that travel really took away some of my maybe arrogance or demanding. that I assume that that's the way the rest of the world was. And I'm like, well, I guess I could go without that, you know. And when you spend, especially if you go to another place for more than a few weeks and you spend, you know, a month or two months or a year someplace, you, your habits change. And then you, when you move someplace else, you realize those things you just can't get. You're going to have to figure out a way to make them. Like in Japan, there's these wonderful dried persimmons that I can't get anywhere. 
So a friend taught me how to do the persimmons the exact same way, and it takes a few weeks to do them the way that the Japanese method is. And I learned that. Yeah. yeah. Maybe maybe I could mention a couple of pictures so that people don't get the idea that people don't get the idea that my uh, the book is all saccharine because I I have some controversial things in there and. And uh, I, I'm glad to put them in there because I know that there are some things that people that I say that people definitely would take uh, exception to. And so I have some photographs in there uh, in the book that, that are like that. <clears throat> and, uh, you know, some, a lot of, a lot of uh, media now is, uh, is moving toward uh, the sweeter you are, the more, the more reception that you'll get. And, and I, certainly some of this and some of my, what I put forth is sweet, but some of it is challenging. And I think it would have to be challenging because human life is not that even that we can avoid recognizing that it's challenging. So uh, I have a couple of, one that I mentioned, I mentioned, uh, since you mentioned Japan, I, I, was in, I was in Japan and I was witnessing a, a, a ritual and the ritual was was extraordinarily impeccably done. And there's a beautiful photograph in the book of the ritual. And I put a saying on a saying on top of that ritual, which I'm sure was uh, was popular in some ways, but unpopular in others. That very frequently, the more people perfect the ritual, the further away they get from the essence of the ritual. And uh, I'm not saying that the ritual has no value, but I'm saying that uh, that that does happen, and I did see that as a child, and I see that since that uh, there are things that happen in formal religion where people memorize prayers, and really the essence of that prayer is is uh, is lost, and people memorize prayer books, and uh, and the reward goes to the person that's memorized it the best or the fa- or the most quickly. And uh, so that picture represents, that isn't an insult to uh, Japan or Shinto, but it is a statement of my opinion of the value of ritual and how the danger of ritual because it can come, a person can come to feel accomplished in the ritual and lose the essence of the ritual. That's exactly right, where you kind of forget the ground that you're going for and you just go through the motions of it. It's real easy to do that. Yeah, I have another one also that probably might be confusing, and uh, it what has to do that with on? that's uh, one of the ones that was mentioned to you. That's the, the one with the panda bear. Okay. There's a the panda bear with two ladies, one on either side mm-hmm. of the panda. No matter bear. how gently and, we initiate interactions with one another, we will not accept each other as well-meaning friends until we realize that we view all new interactions as potential danger. From that honesty, we can move on to neutral, then potentially to well-meaning friends. Yeah, I think that's probably, that is relatively controversial because people try very hard to be friendly when they want to be friendly. Uh, And this picture was taken actually in the zoo somewhere in Asia. I don't remember the zoo. Taiwan, the Taiwan Zoo. And that, it looks almost like it could be a real panda. And there was a real panda on the other side of the wall in the cage but these people are petting a, a statue of a panda, which looks uh, <laughs> real cute. It looks like a panda, but it's not. And the the uh, the idea is uh, the idea of two people being on either side of a bear is is a little bit symbolic because it's not so much that we see each other when we first meet a person, we see that person as an enemy, but we are alert to the danger that it might present to us. So we are alert to the, uh, not danger maybe even, maybe the, the, the potential challenge or conflict or whatever it is. And we're aware of that. We're alert to that. We sometimes even prepare ourselves to avoid that. And I think uh, not acknowledging that our very first interactions with people uh, are a little bit scary and for, especially for some type of people and for the other type of person, they're scary as well, but those people prepare themselves more or feel more, more confident. But still below that confidence is an insecurity that 
is this going to go well? Are they going to like me? How can I impress them? How can I influence them to think what I want them to think? And all that in that, we start with that. And if we acknowledge that, I think there's a chance to move on. And people that we've really gotten close to, whether we realize or not, we have gone through that process with. So I'm, I'm saying in this saying that wouldn't it be interesting if we actually recognized in the beginning that, uh, that <clears throat> this was a, a potentially minimally threatening situation and uh, we could be a little lighter about it and not have to, be, and not have to fake our, our friendliness. What do you think about that? The, what comes to mind is how when monkeys meet each other, there's that big, big fake monkey smile. Like, I'm okay, I'm okay, I'm really okay. Here I am, I'm okay. You know, and there are moments when I have caught myself walking by someone doing the monkey smile as a way of saying, really, I'm safe, I'm safe, I'm not an enemy. And I have really worked hard to not do that as a, I have, I'm a big smiler and there is a time in my own spiritual practice when I recognized my smile was also something I used to perhaps disarm people or keep myself safe. It was a way to keep myself removed from a situation. And I really had to do that work to make my smile not about that you know, to really let my smile be what it is from the inside rather than from the outside. And I somehow think what you just talked about speaks to that same honesty on interacting. Yeah, I hear you. Uh And you're listening to Justin Gold talking about his book, Currency of Moments on Be More Now. I think we have time for maybe one more. Um, Page 18, you pose a provocative question. Is wisdom becoming extinct? So we recognize actual wisdom when we're trained that wisdom is information multiplied by polish of presentation. Can you speak to that? Yeah, that's, that's uh, uh, one of my uh, uh, things that I've, I've really studied and, and uh, observed. And it's, it's an unfortunate manifestation and it, goes, it runs very deep that uh, <clears throat> we really are unaware of uh, of uh, the the actual depth of, of that wisdom reflects. I'm even having trouble expressing this in words because we are trained. We are trained that there's a certain that facts are very close to wisdom, and if they presented smoothly, that that person is reflecting something of of depth and value. Now, there certainly is a value for information, and there certainly is a value for polish. But uh, <clears throat> wisdom is, is a term that I use for expressing something that goes beneath the surface of things. And it's connected very much with personal experience, with relating that personal experience to certain variables by interpreting it through your own filter and your own, <clears throat> uh, the own, your own way of looking at the world and what can come out from that is really more poetry than, than, uh, than explanation. So in exploring this question, I have found that uh, this, the respect and the regard and the recognition of that quality is very close to being lost. And I put on that uh, photograph, I put a picture that I took of a buffalo in, uh, in uh, uh, Yellowstone National Park because everybody knows about the extinction of the buffalo. And, right. and I think that uh, there is a similar extinction happening where, uh, where our valuation and recognition of the difference between information and polish and wisdom uh, is, is lacking. So, right. And I say when wisdom becomes extinct, society stagnates. And I think we may be in that situation where where uh, we're, we're looking for the most, uh, the smoothest uh, uh, presentation or the, most, the cleverest presentation, and we lose the heart that goes, that is a necessary function uh, of wisdom, is emotion and feeling and uh, intuition. Right. Do you have a thought of what we could do to, to bring that back? Uh, 
in our own lives, you know, someone's yes. personal life. Well, I think, I think for me, reading has been a big source of differentiating because I read all kinds of things. And I, li- I like clever books, and as I said, I like spy books. Uh, but there are some, some writers, some alive and some not alive, that write, and you really get the feeling that you're reading about somebody's life and you're reading about somebody who's telling you something that they know and have lived through. And a, a story of, some, of somebody, uh, by somebody who has really lived through what they're talking about, whether it's an idea or an experience or a, a circumstance, that that person has actually lived through that something can be, it can be distinguished. And I say that because I, I feel I have distinguished between those two things, and I appreciate both of them, but I, I do know the difference. So uh, for us to actually meet people and, being able to, and be able to uh, differentiate in that, in, in that way, that's challenging because people have reputation, and reputation is very, very important in our culture. In fact, if you look on, if you look on uh, the social media, a person with a reputation could be a basketball player, says something about something that has nothing to do with basketball, and, and 15,000 people re, uh, respond to that. But then if somebody who really is an expert in that subject, who nobody knows about, says something, 12 people respond, you know? So our, our culture is very much uh, involved in celebrity, and that is, uh, that's a problem because celebrity masks this story that we're talking about. And in order to see beneath the surface of celebrity, because there are, of course, celebrities that do know what they're talking about and not, not only people like Einstein, who's no longer alive, and, and, uh, and uh, the Buddha, who's no longer alive, but there are people alive that really do know what they're talking about. <clears throat> and some of them have not become celebrities. So it's, it's very challenging. I don't, have a, I don't have an answer for that or really a remedy for that, except uh, I would suggest you read my books. Uh, perfect conclusion <laughs> to this wonderful interview, and I'll make sure I get the links to everybody. I'm going to put all the, the links on the page, and I'm just so grateful that you took the time that you did to have this conversation with me. Okay, my pleasure, certainly. That about wraps up my interview with author and philosopher J.J. Gold, otherwise known as Justin Gold. More information about Justin and his latest book, Currency of Moments, can be found at his website, justingold.net. And if you want to know more about his service organization, Center for Cultural and Naturalist Studies, you can visit ccns-inc.org. I'll put up links to his websites on the archives. So if you want to listen to this show again, check out the links or share it with a friend. You can look up Be More Now on Spotify or go to kzyx.org and click on the link to show archives. You can also find it on my website, bemoreyou.net, and that's B-M-O-R-E-Y-O-U.net. And I hope you enjoyed the edition of Chris Skyhawk's new show, Universal Perspectives, last Thursday. And you remember to tune in next week for Pride Radio. I'll be back the first Thursday of the month, which is June 3rd, with author and Globe Sound Healing Institute founder David Gibson. And we'll be discussing his long career in sound healing, including the latest research in the efficacy of sound therapies, his institute state-approved certificate programs and innovative classes, the art of music mixing, and his sound healing music, which is used in many hospitals around the country, including Boston General and the UC Medical Center. And I'm going to end the show tonight with a few poems written by middle school students at Manchester School, so don't go away. And of course, thanks so much for listening tonight, and stick around for the Treehouse with W. Dan after that. And I'm wishing you all a very peaceful evening. This is Blake Moore with Be More Now. Breathe in small mistakes I make every day. Breathe out happiness. Breathe in bullying inflicted into others. Breathe out positive self-talk. Breathe in criminals whose heart is darker than the blackest black. Breathe out peaceful protests. Breathe in mental illness which inflict, which infect today's elders. Breathe out bravery. Breathe in racism. 
misogyny, homophobia, and transphobia. Breathe out awareness. Breathe in murder of people who will never see their families again. Breathe out safety. Breathe in deadly disease that creates civil wars. Breathe out the truth. Breathe in depression that pollute young minds. Breathe out support. Breathe in the death of loved ones. Breathe out happiness. Over. I breathe in restless nights. I breathe out cozy blankets. Blurred vision as I try to stay awake. Sleep threatening to overtake. I breathe in stressful days. I breathe out playtime with my dog. Streaks of black and white as my dog races by. I breathe in crying sessions. I breathe out rainy weather. Spicy noodles and coffee to soothe my soul. I breathe in loneliness. I breathe out happy memories. Wishing to reunite with friends. I breathe in traumatic events. I breathe out calming music. Blending into the background, trying to let my worries evaporate. Open for Improvement by Adelaide Montanino. Breathe in the angry and confused. Breathe out clarity and change. Breathe in stormy tears, a tearful child uncertain of the reason she is not allowed to see her friends. Breathe out optimistic laughter, a child understanding of the fact that she must keep her friends safe, educated to the fact of how to wear her mask, knowing that this will pass. Breathe in cold-hearted lies leading to destruction, extremists breaking windows of our capital, a scar on our nation that will be hard to heal. Breathe out community, a place where a disagreement is not violent, a place where we help each other, a place where we are whole. Breathe in a hidden wound, something that many a neighbor hides. Breathe out open arms, a place to be comforted, Breathe in a lonely desk strewn with boredom. Breathe out a room of friends ready to learn. Breathe in uninspired procrastination. Breathe out time management. Breathe in a charred stump, the product of our ignorance. Breathe out a forest, a chance to rebuild. Breathe in the fear of the unheard. Breathe out a voice strong and clear. Breathe in the world now a place needing improvement. Breathe out the world as it should be, a place where the door is open for improvement. This has been a production of KZYX Philo 90.7 FM, KZYZ Willitson Ukiah 91.5 FM, and Fort Bragg at 88.1 FM, Mendocino County Public Broadcasting. You can check out our website at kzyx.org to find more content like this, and consider donating by clicking the red donate button in the upper right corner. Thanks for listening. Oh, 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 oh.